Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, the Supreme Court made a momentous decision, one that has significant implications for the rule of law in this country. At 5 p.m. Eastern this afternoon, the Supreme Court agreed to take up former President Trump's claims of presidential immunity. These are not credible claims. That has been thoroughly litigated in both federal district court and federal appellate court. By merely deciding to do this, though, setting aside whatever the court's final ruling is, the court has essentially upended the attempt to hold Donald Trump accountable for his actions to subvert democracy. In fact, the court may have ended that attempt entirely. This decision is also certain to reshape the 2024 presidential race, and it will likely play a determinative role in its outcome. But as much as the significance of this ruling is already apparent, the full consequences here hinge on the timing. Now, in its ruling tonight, the court said it would hear oral arguments in the case the week of April 22nd. Now, April 22nd is not close to today. And we'll get into why exactly the court didn't choose a date that is a lot sooner than that. But April 22nd also on its face sort of seems pretty far from the November election. It's not. Because when you start crunching the numbers and looking at how a trial could actually time out after the Supreme Court makes its decision here, the window in which Trump could face trial, the window for that happening before the November election is incredibly small. The first thing you have to take into account is that the prep time that the judge who is overseeing this case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, the prep time she allotted for Trump and his lawyers has been effectively stalled. Judge Chutkin initially gave Donald Trump and his legal team seven months to prepare for this case, from the day he was indicted to the original trial date in March. Back in December, on December 7th, Trump's legal team asked for a pause, a stay in this case, while Trump's immunity claims were appealed, and Judge Chutkin granted it. And that pause didn't just freeze the case, it also paused all the prep time as well. Trump's t- team still had 88 days left to prepare before the case was paused. And the expectation now is that they would still get those 88 days or something similar to prep when this case is unpaused. So that's point number one. Even if the Supreme Court rules this case can go forward the day after they hear oral arguments, the trial can't just start right away. Trump's team would get another 88 days. Now, point number two is about how long the trial would actually take. Last year, before the case had been paused, potential jurors for the case in the D.C. area received this pre-screening form. You see it right there on the screen. And it specified the trial would last approximately three months after jury selection is completed. And special counsel Jack Smith and Judge Chutkin have also signaled we are looking at something like a three-month trial for this. So just to ballpark this really quickly, let's assume 88 days for Trump's team to finish their prep before the trial. And then let's assume that the three months needed for the trial itself is a nice round 90 days. 
And that comes out to 178 days. That is how long it would take for this trial to actually conclude after we get a decision back from the Supreme Court. So let's go back to the calendar. The election is November 5th. An oral argument on Trump's presidential immunity claims at the Supreme Court is set for the week of April 22nd. This would be the fastest possible scenario here as everything stands at present. The Supreme Court meets Monday, April 22nd, and they make a decision the next day, Tuesday, April 23rd. If we add 178 days to Tuesday, April 23rd, that would mean the trial would finish on Wednesday, October 16th, 20 days before the general election. That is what we are working with here in the best case scenario. Joining me now is Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general of the United States and under President Obama and Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor at Slate, covering the courts. Thank you both for being here tonight. Um, I just first want to start with your reaction to the court's decision here, Neil, um, and your level of optimism about this trial actually happening before the election. Yeah, I have a lot of institutional respect, Alex, for the Supreme Court. I was there this morning um, uh, with my team arguing a different case. Uh, and yet I find myself gravely concerned by this decision by the Supreme Court to hear the case and wait until April. Um, gravely concerned for the rule of law. I mean, Donald Trump has a bogus legal argument here, and the Supreme Court is spending precious months trying to hear it. And the court's known for a lot of things, and certainly efficiency is not one of them. And I think the best that can be said is they've left a schedule that leaves everyone a bit unhappy. It's too fast for Donald Trump, but too slow for Jack Smith and creates far too much uncertainty about the preservation of rule of law and the outcome. Um, you know, later we can talk about those dates, 178 days and 90 and 88 days. I think there is still a strong possibility that the case could be heard, the case could be tried against Donald Trump before the election, and I can go into detail um, later about that. But I certainly think um, right now I am concerned. Yeah, and I want to talk about the mechanisms by which uh, both the DOJ, special counsel, uh, and Judge Chutkin might sort of try and shorten that 178 days. But first, Dahlia, you know, Neil raises a point that is it in, in the world of possibility that the Supreme Court thinks it's somehow reaching a compromise decision here by having this on a timeline that's faster than Trump wants, which is next nebuary, and uh, slower than Jack Smith would like, which would have been, of course, in March. Yeah, I mean, I think we were hoping, you know, a week ago or two weeks ago that the compromise was that Trump might prevail in the Colorado case and lose absolutely in this immunity case. That was supposed to be the grand bargain, right? Now we're doing a, we're, we're sort of doing a Zeno's paradox where we're taking smaller and smaller halves of what we thought might be a win. I think that the real issue for me, and Neil just made this point, is that, you know, the court knows how to act quickly when it needs to. And it certainly acted very quickly in that Colorado, um, you know, bumping them off the ballot case. In fact, it acted much more quickly. So I think one of the things that worries me about this case is the sense that the court tells us what an emergency is, and it's done that in case after case after the, over the last couple of years, doesn't seem to feel that there's any emergency or any 
exigent kind of shot clock going on here. And for those of us who are doing the math that you're doing and that Neil's doing, that's trying to eke out some kind of case on the merits before the election, what the court did today was sort of evince almost no concern for the fact that it's kind of democracy itself against this shot clock. And they seem to be bothered by neither of those axes. Neil, to Dahlia's point, if if the Supreme Court doesn't even see the shot clock, Judge Chutkin does and the special counsel does. So you mentioned that there might be ways to shorten the time frame of 178 days. First, let's just start with what Judge Chutkin might be able to do. Is there a way to narrow, I don't know, the prep time window, the 88 days that Trump and his defense team are due once the case is returned to her, assuming, of course, that the Supreme Court does not rule in Trump's favor on the immunity claim? Yeah. So even before we get to to Judge Chutkin, the question is, when is the court going to decide the case? And I think Dahlia makes such an important point in saying, look, this is a court that moves quickly. For example, I was a lawyer in Bush versus Gore. That was at 36 days start to finish. Um, And I remember the first case at the Supreme Court, we had like four days to brief it. So we've gone from four to like 40 in this supposedly expedited case. So that does concern me. Having said that, I do think the court, you know, and I hope they listen to the pressure of the American public to decide this thing quickly um, after they hear the case on April 22nd. Now, Judge Chutkin in the interim does have some options. So she said she was going to give Donald Trump 88 days to prepare for his trial. But she said that well before Trump, you know, had had the Supreme Court grant his immunity case. And Trump can and his lawyers can walk and chew gum at the same time. They don't need all of those 88 days. And so Judge Shutkin could even now say, look, if this case comes back to me, Donald Trump, you should start working now because you're not going to get the full 88 days. That was in a world in which you didn't have months and months of pre-existing delay like you do now. Um, Dahlia, in addition to the prep time that she could shrink, is there something that Jack Smith can do? I know Andrew Weissman had suggested maybe they trim the sort of charges against Trump. Do you think that that's at all likely? And and if it is, what might be taken out? I, I mean, I think, you know, in some sense, Jack Smith has doggedly made the case time after time to the court that you've got to do this more quickly. And in some sense, uh, as we've said, we've had a little bit of a split the baby today where he doesn't get what he wants, but Donald Trump doesn't get what he wants. Whether he can, I don't know, sort of hive off some of this, make it a tighter. This was a pretty tight case as compared to the Fonnie Willis, you know, sprawling case in in, uh, Fulton County. This was a pretty tight case. I suppose there's a way to tighten it. But I think the real thing we have to ask ourselves is, you know, are we going to wait for weeks and weeks and weeks for somebody to write, say, a dissent in this case at the Supreme Court, and then it's coming down at the end of June. So I think what I worry about more than anything is that no matter what Judge Chutkin or Jack Smith can do, if you have four votes at the Supreme Court or three votes that want to do the run out the clock play, I think that they can kind of keep this thing stalled for much, much longer than need be. Do you read, Neil, to Dahlia's point, anything? I mean, the, the fact that they don't seem to be working expeditiously and they know how to work quickly when they want to. I mean, do you read anything in that in terms of how, fa- how much they're going to favor Trump in all of this? It seems clear that they understand the political reality here. I mean, how could you not? 
Do you think that suggests yeah, so- they might actually find in his favor on these ludicrous claims of presidential immunity? No, Alex, because they are so ludicrous. No, I do not expect uh, any justices uh, to side with Donald Trump on the merits of this claim. It's crazy. And he even said so. His lawyers, back when he was being impeached uh, after January 6th, he says, you can't impeach me. The only remedy is to indict me after I leave office. So that's exactly what Jack Smith did. And now he's complaining and saying, oh, you can't indict me because I have absolute immunity. It's all been a long, long shell game. And I take Dahlia's point about the court and maybe a dissent or something like that. But I think that when the court hears this case and realizes just how bogus Donald Trump's claims are, they'll decide it quickly. And even if there's a dissent, the chief justice has the power or whomever's in the majority to release the majority opinion without waiting for the dissent. And in a case like this, with the American public deserving so much of answers about what happened on January 6th and a formal trial to get to the bottom of it. I, I sure hope that's what will happen once we get there. Yeah, I mean, to the to the <laughs> to the rulings that have preceded this case, the Supreme Court taking it up, Dahlia, I mean, the 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 appellate court ruling was, as I think you called it a bench slap, like there was no room for entertaining any legality in Trump's argument. And yet the Supreme Court has taken it up. And I and I would imagine if you're sitting on the, the Circuit Court of Appeals and you're one of the judges that took your time to write a very thoughtful, wide ranging opinion about how this thing did not hold water, this immunity claim, sort of like what are the what are the implications there that the Supreme Court decided to take it up anyway? I, I mean, I'll go you one better. Don't forget when the Colorado case was argued, when Anderson was argued at the Supreme Court, the court didn't want to touch the question of the insurrection and Donald Trump's responsibility for the insurrection. And in fact, Donald Trump's own lawyer was like, yeah, that was super bad. Right. So we don't we don't even have a court that wants to touch the merits of, you know, how bad January 6th was. And I would add to that, you know, the American public has seen, uh, you know, the January 6th commission has seen uh, uh, the impeachment trial. They have seen, uh, you know, two E. Jean Carroll verdicts. They have seen uh, a verdict uh, in New York in the Trump Uh, financial misconduct case, there is a pile of unrefuted evidence, including the finding at the Colorado Supreme Court that Donald Trump insurrected. All that stuff has not been touched as best as I can see by the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm not confident they want to touch it. And just to Neil's point, I think it's really important to understand when you get to the merits, when you get past all the sort of shell games about timing and the court feeling it needs to weigh in on this, it couldn't do a summary affirmance. We've still not had a single signal from the U.S. Supreme Court that that per curiam opinion, that three judge opinion that came out of the D.C. Circuit is anything but bulletproof. I think it's still bulletproof. I think we're just trying to figure out how to get there. All I have to say is maybe the Supreme Court judges, justices should look at how Judge Angoran, how Judge Kaplan, how Judge Marchand has handled their cases here in New York where we get things done when it comes to holding people accountable. Not saying, just saying. Neil Katyal and Dahlia Lithwick, thank you both for joining me tonight. Really appreciate it. 
We have lots more ahead this evening, including the breaking news that an Illinois judge has disqualified Donald Trump from the 2024 presidential ballot over his actions on January 6th. Supreme Court, over to you. But first, more on this stunning decision by the Supreme Court to entertain Donald Trump's immunity claims. Which justices wanted to hear this case? That's coming up next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, Kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. For the U.S. Supreme Court to agree to hear a case, at least four justices must vote to take it up. So not a majority, although it can be. Four out of nine is the bare minimum. It's the magic number. And now, with the news that the Supreme Court has decided to hear Donald Trump's claim that he is somehow immune from criminal prosecution, it begs the question, which of these nine justices decided to take up this case? And why did it take the court so very long to do so? After all, it took just 51 days from the time Trump was kicked off the ballot in Colorado on December 19th to when the Supreme Court heard oral arguments for that case, the 14th Amendment case, on February 8th. Now, on December 11th, 2023, special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to quickly weigh in on Trump's presidential immunity appeal and to do so early, which the court rejected. And now, by the time we get to April 22nd, which is when the court plans to hear oral arguments in this immunity case, it will have been 133 days since the court was first asked to hear the appeal. So the pace is curious, around 50 days when it appears to help Donald Trump, and over 130 days when it doesn't. Joining me now is Mark Joseph Stern, senior writer for Slate, covering the courts and the law, and Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation. Ellie, first, just like, let's talk about the optics of this order. It's unsigned. There are no dissents. I'm asking you to answer maybe the unanswerable, but do you think it's possible that this was a unanimous decision, that the liberal justices on the court co-signed taking this case up? I highly doubt it. I mean, as you said, you only need four votes to take the case at all. Most likely, it was the four horsemen, right? It was uh, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, who decided to hear this case. I'm a little bit more interested about the fifth vote, because remember, there was an option for the Supreme Court to take the case, but not grant the stay, but allow justice to keep forward. And they must have had a fifth vote to even gum up that process. So that most likely came from either Roberts or Barrett or both. I doubt very highly that the liberals were in on it. But what I will say is that we've talked about, you know, Dahlia was talking about Colorado earlier, right? 
the liberals apparently are going to allow Trump back on the ballot, and they got nothing for that. They traded away that for nothing because the deal potentially, of letting Trump be on the ballot but denying his immunity request, that obviously didn't happen. Yeah, that seems to be somewhat up in smoke. Mark, I have to go back um, into the Wayback Machine or the Medium Back Machine uh, to revisit a conversation we had, I don't remember when it was, two weeks ago. Wow. <laughs> two weeks ago. Seven, seven years ago in TV anchor uh, time. You suggested that the Supreme Court may have had already decided to take, have already decided to take up the immunity case you suggested that they had sort of maybe cleared their April calendar to take up a high stakes case. Can you talk a little bit more about what feels like a very prescient piece of um, analysis? Yes, I, I'm saddened to learn that my educated guess was correct there. Um, but what I noticed was that in December, shortly after Jack Smith first asked the Supreme Court to take up this case on an expedited schedule, the court was granting new cases but not putting them on the April calendar. One case in particular, a filing revealed that the court had secretly told the parties, we're holding this over until October so you don't need to rush. Uh, in January, another major case, a death penalty case, uh, the court rather bizarrely hung on to it and then held it over till next term. That was a, a strange pattern to me. I've covered the court for a long time. You usually don't see that. The justices like to clear their plates with these cases by filling up the calendar right until the end of April. And so that was why when we spoke a few weeks ago or maybe a few years ago in anchor time, <laughs> it seemed to me there was a real chance that what the justices were thinking was, look, we're going to have at least one more blockbuster emergency case. It will probably be the immunity case. And so we're going to hold open space for it uh, later in the term. Again, just my guess. But I fear that in light of today's news, it, it is quite plausible. Wait, if, if they did that, Ellie, that is, first of all, I'm reminded of the Dobbs decision where they decided they were going to take up the case, but didn't actually put it on the docket for several months because of political realities. Right. Could this court have done that again? And what does that suggest to you about, you know, they, they could have taken this up in January when S special counsel Jack Smith said, hey, can you hear this on an expedited basis, but chose not to. Then the appeals court gives a bulletproof ruling, as Dahlia says, and they still decide to take it up. What it says is that they are cor corrupted political actors who act in bad faith. The reason why people like Mark and people like Dahlia seem to have a crystal ball is because they're real because they're realists and they understand the court for what it is. And at some point, people in the media, people at home, and people sitting in the White House have to stop pretending that the Supreme Court is some kind of benign, trying to do its best institution and start to realize that there are six Republicans, not conservatives, Republicans on the Supreme Court who view it as their job to help the Republican Party. And until we do something about that, until we take away that power, until we draw the line on them there, they will continue to do this. They will help Trump. They will take away abortion rights. They will end affirmative action. They will liberalize gun rights. They will do all of it until we stop them. And somebody, somebody needs to start listening in the higher echelons of the Democratic Party because we will keep losing every day we allow these six Republicans in robes to rule over all of us. Um, Mark, I so appreciate Ellie's passion and disdain for this court. I, I, I mean, I, 
it is an incontrovertible fact that when the 14th Amendment case rolled around, they were able to move that thing through real quickly, even though the stakes are as high, if not considerably higher in this case. And I wonder if there is any explanation that you could even fathom other than, you know, craven political calculation. So, look, I think there's a possibility that over the last two weeks, the liberal justices were trying to come to a compromise with a handful of conservatives. I think Ellie is right. Probably Roberts and Barrett were seen as the most gettable here to issue a summary affirmance, perhaps, of the D.C. Circuit's bulletproof decision or to simply deny a stay. And, you know, the court could have denied a stay, allowed the trial to move forward in the preliminary stages and also heard arguments and rendered a decision to affirm that the trial could move forward in the summer. The court had other options. And I really do think that the justices on the left were struggling to find something, salvage something out of this over the last few weeks that would make it anything less than a disaster. But frankly, it appears that they have failed. And I cannot come up with any other justification for what the court has done here. Delaying, delaying over and over again, allowing Trump to run out the clock, but only in cases that he wants the court to move slowly on. As you've said, when he's bumped off the ballot, he gets to the court the next month. When he raises a bogus immunity claim, he gets to push his trial back so many months that it probably won't happen before the election. That is a disturbing pattern. I, I have to say, I am cynical about this court. Even I am shocked by what happened mm. today. Last term, there were some decisions that suggested maybe a few of the justices in the middle would let us have some democracy, would let us have voting rights and make our own decisions and vote in a free and fair election and, and hold people accountable for subverting that election. And now I just don't think that's true. I, I have to agree with Ellie's extreme cynicism. I feel like this court is in the tank for Donald Trump. Well, you know, Ellie, in the break leading into the segment, you see they, they, you rightly point out the vested interest that some of these conservatives have in a re-election of Trump as it pertains to their retirement. Clarence Thomas doesn't want to die on that court. And he's getting old and he's never going to retire during a Democratic president president. So Clarence Thomas, one of the reasons why he's not recusing himself is that Clarence Thomas needs Trump to win again so Clarence Thomas can retire. And most likely, Sam Alito needs Trump to win again so Alito can retire instead of having to die on the bench. And so that's at least two of the nine who have a vested professional interest in seeing continued Republican hegemony over this country. And that's not the first time this has happened. As we all know, Sandra Day O'Connor wanted George Bush to be president and thus appointed him president in Bush v. Gore because she wanted to retire under a Republican president. This is how Republicans roll. Well, on that note, we are going to have to leave it there. The conversation is by no means over. Uh, please come back, Mark Joseph Stern and Ellie Mistal. Thanks so much for your time and your passions tonight. I really appreciate it in these doldrums and dark moments. Uh, still to come this evening, the man who is arguably the most responsible for the six to three conservative majority Supreme Court dropped a bombshell of his own today. We'll get to that. Plus another breaking story. For the third time, Donald Trump has been kicked off a state ballot. What happens now? More on that coming up next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. 
Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We have breaking news tonight. A judge in Illinois has disqualified former President Trump from appearing on the state's Republican primary ballot. Cook County Judge Tracy Porter cited the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause in her ruling, ordering the state's election board to remove Donald Trump based on his actions on January 6th. Illinois is now the third state to disqualify Trump from 2024 primary ballots. The others are Maine and Colorado. As of right now, though, all three of these disqualifications are on hold pending a Supreme Court decision that could come down any day. Judge Porter acknowledged as much in her ruling tonight, writing that she knew her decision could not be the ultimate outcome. Now, whenever the court rules on this issue, it is sure to be considered in light of tonight's news that the court will now take up the question of presidential immunity in Jack Smith's federal election interference case. Joining me now to discuss all this is Mary McCord, former senior DOJ official for the National Security Division and an MSNBC legal analyst. Mary, thanks for joining me tonight. Um, Some breaking news on all fronts. Let me first just get your thoughts on the immunity question and the degree to which the, the fact that the court is already mulling over the 14th Amendment case is at all a factor in the decision tonight on immunity. Well, I know there have been people that have said ever since the court decided, you know, to take up the 14th Amendment Section 3 question and people listen to the arguments. And I think most of us who listen to him felt like the court is uh, not prepared. There are not five justices prepared to bar Donald Trump from the ballot. They're concerned about a state having the ability to bar a presidential candidate from a a ballot. Um, I I know a lot of people said, well, maybe they'll sort of balance that against a ruling uh, either affirming the D.C. district in the in the um, immunity case or just not taking it up at all. You know, I, I don't I, I think, you know, in the subconscious of the justices, the, those kind of balancing things out may exist. But I think they would very much deny that they do any type of horse trading like that or that one case is related to the other in that way when the cases aren't technically related on on legal issues. I do think it's interesting today to just think about the juxtaposition of this ruling out of Illinois with the decision uh, to take up the question presented by the Supreme Court. So the question presented is the question that the Supreme Court has limited their review to is whether a former president enjoys immunity from criminal prosecutions 
for things that were within his official acts as president. So that we typically think of that from, uh, based on the law that applies to immunity in civil cases, things that are within your the outer perimeter of a president's official acts may receive immunity, but that question's never been asked for criminal cases. So when you think about what are a president's official acts, and on the same day as this as this decision to take up this case, we have a, a court in Chicago or in Illinois, like courts in other places who have said, Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. Just thinking about engaging in insurrection, the very thing that his criminal prosecution in Washington, D.C. is based on, engaging in this entire scheme that led to insurrection. It's hard to even conceive of that scheme as being within a former president's official acts. So the, the, the Supreme Court could have handled this much differently and said, we don't have to address questions about, you know, in the in the gen- generic space about whether a president could ever be immune for prosecution for things within the outer perimeter of his official acts. Because here, this case in front of us is about a multifaceted conspiracy that led to an insurrection, an attempt, an effort to overturn the votes of the American people. And whatever else you might say about official acts, that is not a president's official act. Yeah, it just seems like the court has been handed a lot of data points, if not just very strong rulings, suggesting uh, here's a person who fomented insurrection. <laughs> you know, here's a person who has no claim to presidential immunity, according to the appellate court system. I mean, Does it surprise you that they even feel the need to weigh in on this and that there was no noted dissent in the ruling today? Well, you don't normally have a dissent from a grant of cert. You would have dissent sometimes from denials of cert, or you might have statements that sort of explain why cert was denied. Um, So it would be unusual in the grant of a cert. I mean, a a justice who is opposed to cert, uh, you know, there's a good chance that justice will ultimately be opposed to the the ruling of the other members and can issue a dissent at that point. So I'm not surprised about that. I am surprised that it took almost two full weeks for them to decide to take this case. I can't imagine why they didn't couldn't have known uh, immediately, justice by justice, whether they thought that the case was important enough to take. Um, and, you know, I, and I've heard others say, and I don't disagree with this, this could have been an effort by some of the justices to actually convince others not to take the case. And maybe that's why it took this amount of time. They could have been also trying to hammer uh, out what the actual question would be that they decided to take. But still, almost two weeks uh, is surprising to me, and I think that's why a lot of us thought they would deny cert. Um, in terms of my surprise about the justices, I think there's at least uh, at least two who who maybe want to side with um, the former president on this, or at least don't want to see him go to trial before the election. I mean, that, which is different than necessarily siding with him. Um, but I think that uh, you know most of the justices ultimately, I think, will come down on the same side that the D.C. Circuit did. And, and determined that in on these facts, if they reach this, if they don't send it back to Judge Chutkin to determine whether this was within the scope of his official acts or not, but if they actually look at this, the facts of this case, uh, and 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 address um, whether on a on a case with these facts that could possibly be immune from criminal prosecution, I think the answer will be no from a majority of the justices. You sure would hope so. I know this is going to be the subject of an emergency episode of your podcast with Andrew Weissman prosecuting Donald Trump. And I will be listening, Mary McCord. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Pleasure. Still ahead this evening, in the past two years alone, this Supreme Court has upended some of the foundational rights of modern American society. 
And there is one man who is not only responsible for molding this conservative court, he considers it his greatest accomplishment. That story is next. The United States Supreme Court has once again created chaos. Today, the high court announced that it will take up Donald Trump's immunity claim in late April, a timeline that could end the possibility of holding Trump accountable for trying to steal an election before Americans cast votes in another election this November. And the court is set to make one of the most consequential decisions in modern American history at the precise time when Americans are hugely distrustful of the institution and still reeling from the court's other recent decisions. Because of the court's 2022 decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, the future of reproductive health care, including abortion and fertility treatments, is now at risk. And then there's what the court did in the past two years. It ended race-based affirmative action. It blocked gun safety legislation. It allowed businesses to discriminate against LGBTQ people. This court has radically, unilaterally upended American life. And there is one man who almost more than anyone else, is responsible for all of this. Addison Mitchell McConnell III, or Mitch, to his friends and foes alike. It was eight years ago this week that Senator Mitch McConnell took one of the most unprecedented and consequential steps in the modern history of the United States Senate. Republicans threw down the gauntlet today in the fight over the future of the Supreme Court. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said there will be no vote or even any hearings before the election on anyone President Obama nominates to replace Justice Antonin Scalia. After the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, Mitch McConnell announced that he wouldn't even hold a hearing on any nominee President Obama chose to replace Scalia. Why? Because it was an election year, he said. The next justice could fundamentally alter the direction of the Supreme Court and have a profound impact on our country. So, of course, of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. No one in modern history had ever actually stolen a Supreme Court vacancy from a sitting president until Mitch McConnell. And that decision had a profound impact on the future of the country. Trump won the election thanks to those votes from evangelicals interested in a Supreme Court appointment. And he went on to appoint Neil Gorsuch to the seat that had been stolen from his predecessor. The next year, Trump appointed Brett Kavanaugh to the bench as well. And as yet another presidential election year approached, people started to wonder, What would Mitch McConnell do if another vacancy opened up on the court? Would he help confirm a third Trump justice in an election year? Supreme Court justice next year. I would fill it. (laughs) I would fill it. On September 18th of 2020, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And with less than two months until the presidential election, Mitch McConnell rushed through the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett. That is how we got the radical conservative majority court we have today. This is Mitch McConnell's legacy. And today, Senator McConnell announced that he would be retiring from Senate leadership this November. I'm immensely proud of the accomplishments. I've played some role in obtaining. Still have enough gas in my tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics. And I intend to do so with all the enthusiasm 
with which they've become accustomed. So Mitch McConnell will no longer be running the upper chamber. After falling out with the former president, McConnell may be trying to wash his hands clean of the Trump-era Republican Party. The irony, of course, is that it is Mitch McConnell who, more than almost anyone else, abided Donald Trump and may have just helped him evade justice. We're going to talk about all of that coming up next. We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one. That was Senator Mitch McConnell during Trump's second impeachment and explaining that McConnell would not vote to convict Trump, but that Trump was still liable in the American court system. And today, Senator McConnell announced he's stepping down as Republican leader just hours before the Supreme Court that he helped compose announced it would delay justice in Trump's election interference trial. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times. Michelle, thank you for being here. <sighs> it kind of feels like McConnell's leaving the scene of a car accident that he helped. That he create. caused. Yeah, that he caused. Yeah. Is that I mean, fair? I think it's yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that the only thing, the, the only kind of maybe sliver of a grim irony is that he is that he has sort of laid the foundation for the destruction of the party that he yeah. so <laughs> deeply loved right so he you know he's enabled he i think he makes no dis, no secret of his total disdain for Donald Trump even though i would imagine that sure. he will endorse him and and bend the knee like everybody else does but you saw after January 6th that he clearly he was clearly angry. He wasn't angry enough to actually take the step and show the leadership that would put an end to Donald Trump. But he thought somebody else would do it for him. And the reason one reason that we're unlikely to see any sort of serious criminal accountability before the election is because of the very Supreme Court that Mitch McConnell, you know, kind of used these really devious norm breaking tricks to reshape. Yeah, his influence in shaping this court cannot be underestimated because not only does he, you know, hijack Merrick Garland's nomination to get one of Trump's picks in the court, a conservative, he also sort of ensures that evangelicals and conservatives who are skeptical of Donald Trump in 2016 have mm -hmm. a re reason to come out to vote for him, which is dangling an empty Supreme Court seat to the American public and saying whoever wins gets to have this. I mean, that was hugely influential in Donald Trump's win, I think. Right. And also just, you know, sort of was able to pack all of these lower courts. And yes. so we have these increasingly, you know, bananas decisions from, you know, for example, our friend Matthew Kesmerick in, in Texas. In Texas. Um, yes, he's reshaped the court system in this country in a way that kind of all avenues towards both accountability for Donald Trump and, you know, justice for people who've been oppressed by the various, you know, by various Republican policies are just being systematically shut down. I, um, I also, to go to your earlier point about how he has abided Trump, you know, we all, we, we will not, not stop playing that sound of him saying, you know, presidents are not immune from prosecution, but we're not going to do it here in the Senate. It is choices like that that have led us to this moment where Donald Trump, it's an open question whether he will ever be held accountable for his actions on January 6th. And the inability of McConnell to understand sort of the harvest he was sowing 
both during his time, you know, before January 6th and thereafter is just appalling. Right. And, and, you know, Mitch McConnell is also a kind of old-fashioned Cold War Republican who has now overseen the complete capitulation of his party to Russia and Vladimir yes. Putin. And, you know, has, has, has been unable to engineer even something that you would think would be as bipartisan as aid to Ukraine when it's, you know, running out of ammunition. So he has just left a, just such a path of destruction in his wake, not just of his enemies, but of all of his own um sensible values. Yeah, well, there is some reporting that the sort of straw that broke the camel's back or one of the catalysts for this announced retirement from leadership is that he really wants to press on Ukraine aid. To that I say, how can no, how is it that retirement has to be a precondition for Republicans doing the right well, thing? And it's also the opposite, right? If you really want to press yes. for Ukraine aid, <laughs> Stay the kind leader. Of, right, the, that is actually the position on in which to do it. I think the open question is, you know, there's been also a lot of back and forth in terms of reporting and general scuttlebutt in the upper chamber about whether he's ultimately going to endorse Donald Trump. And, like, it's amazing to me that a man who so clearly recognizes the destruction of his own party would even be entertaining the notion of, you know, elevating the destructor right. chief Especially back to the because office. it seems, I mean, the, he's, he's 86 years old, right? Is he really going to run for re-election? I mean, in, in two years, he doesn't have another internal Senate race to deal with. But we'll see. Um, you know, I kind of, you know, I wouldn't, if, you know, I wouldn't sort of put any money on Mitch McConnell's decency and integrity. Do you have any optimism about who, not, I'm not asking who, but just in terms of the leadership that comes next. No, of course not. I mean, you know, I would say I would say this. I would say the only optimism, the only sign of optimism is that I think it's likely that the leader who comes next will be less competent. Right. Because Mitch McConnell was very good really? at obstruction in the same way we saw with Kevin McCarthy. I mean, Kevin McCarthy maybe wasn't great at his job, but he was better at his job than Mike Johnson. And that redounded to the Republicans benefit. Right. As the House went from Kevin McCarthy to Mike Johnson, so the Senate goes from Mitch McConnell to, to someone named John. Someone yeah. named John. Michelle Goldberg, thank you for um, helping me ride the chariot into darkness tonight. <laughs> uh, I appreciate your time, my friend. That is our show for tonight. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated. All right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.